0: The IPO window can be narrow. Be ready when it opens. Think timing is everything? Look again. Readiness is vital. Deloitte's audit and IPO readiness services can help companies prepare for IPO and exit opportunities. For example, a Deloitte audit is an opportunity for insight, one that can help leaders see further and deeper into their businesses and can help inform vital decisions. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US forward slash EGC. That's D-E-L-O-I-T-T-E dot com forward slash US forward slash E-G-C. Welcome to Inks the Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of Learn Best, author of New York Times best-selling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alex Von Vontobel, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet Chen Amit, co-founder and CEO of Topalti, a finance automation suite focused on global payments and accounts payable. Chen is a repeat founder who founded Topalti in 2010 and grew the business as the only employee for the first year. Depalti is now one of the most highly valued privately held fintech companies in Israel and is valued at $8.3 billion. The company processes over $43 billion in payments annually with a team of over 1,000 employees and growing. Prior to Depalti, Chen was the CEO of Atrica, a carrier Ethernet company that Nokia Simons acquired. Before that business, Chen was the founder and CEO of Varex, a provider of business intelligence software. And with that, let's welcome the formidable repeat entrepreneur, Chen. Let's go back to the basics. Uh, let's go back to that day in 2010 when you had an aha moment and said, let's go build this business. Tell me what that looked like and tell me what your vision was.
1: Living to that moment, I sold the company about uh, 18 months earlier, ran through some of the ideas I had to uh, for some uh, entrepreneurial ideas, and then reached out to a friend from business school. We both went to INSAD in, in France, and told him, you know, I'm itching to do something. If you, with your investments, find anything interesting, let me know. He reached out to me a few months later and told me about one of his portfolio companies. And the founder of that company, uh, Yariv, uh, was complaining about the challenges of making payments to his publisher. It's an online advertising network, and they need to pay website owners for the on an advertising revenue they generate on those websites. I thought to myself, really like in 2010 payments, just making payments to other people, is that a challenge? But I was bored. So I said, you know what, let's uh, meet with Yariv and see if there's anything interesting there. He described the problem, same response. And I said, you know what, let's, let's see what that is really like in real life. And I shadowed him for a couple of days. And while shadowing him, I understood that payments was an important part of the problem, but just part of the problem. The aha moment was understanding that this is a multidiscipline problem, that a president of a small company, but a senior person in a small company spends days uh, to make payments uh, for a few people, just made no sense. And I thought, well, that's an interesting challenge. Let's let's see how we address that.
0: Can we go back to that first year when you were the only employee? How did you manage so many priorities? How did you know you were on the right path? What what happened that made you feel comfortable to keep going? Give us a sense of what that felt like.
1: Oren, my co-founder and and the, the initial investor, actually wanted to invest from the get go, from the, the moment after I met with uh, that founder I mentioned. Uh, Oren said, "Okay, let's let's go. I'll invest and and." Uh, let's build a company there. It was me who wasn't sure that this is really a company. And obviously with hindsight, it's a major company, but at that time I thought it might be just a project for that specific company. And at that time I already had another person expressing a similar pain, but I also had a dozen other people tell me, it's not interesting, it's not a problem, don't bother. So not coming from the domain, I said, you know what? I'm interested in the problem. It's an interesting enough problem for me to work on. I'm not willing to commit to an investor because once you raise money from an investor, you actually commit for you know five-year, seven-year time period to give it all, all your, uh, all yourself uh, to make it a success. And I thought it might just be a project for uh, these two customers, and that's why. I started uh, alone and didn't hire anyone. And in a way it was the easiest year because alignment between sales, marketing, product, operations uh, was easy. It was the priorities uh, were to get a few more customers just to get a feel whether there is more to it than just a project. And then to serve these customers, to work with banks, to find the banking partner, to work with them. Not putting out fires continuously, but yeah, it was the hot topic of the hour that I would address. But yeah, since it was all in my mind, I knew how to prioritize it. I didn't have to consult with anyone to uh, get information, to share information. It was easier in that, in that respect.
0: What was the status of global payments? What did that look like? And walk us through what your early customer experience was. That was the hook.
1: It was me with these initial two founders uh, who had problems and trying to address uh, their problems and just understanding the the problem domain and uh, trying to solve it. And as I said, I I wasn't from the industry, so I didn't know what a licensed payment provider is, what does it mean to be unlicensed. I just wanted to make payments on their behalf. And through my network, I reached out to it, it happened to be Citibank, a major, major bank, and I happened to land on the department that serves giant businesses and governments. But they were the right—they had the right product for me. And by luck, the woman there was just interested in startups and interested in Israel and what have you. And she just wanted to work with me, and that was kind of fortunate. So uh, I landed on a great product to integrate with. At that time, and just step by step, uh, you know, got into payments, got into tax compliance, got into AML compliance, understood what I needed to do for these entrepreneurs, for these uh, customer founders, and uh, rolled it from there. In terms of kind of a pivotal moment, was customer number three. I mentioned the first two. Customer number three, is a company Seeking Alpha. Uh, you may be familiar with them. They are a financial content uh, website. And I, I met with the CFO there at the time and his team, and they loved what I do. I sent them the agreement. And then it was silent, like dead silent for a couple of weeks. So I reached out to him and said, so are we making progress? Do you want to move to the next step? He said, look, uh, one of our board members of the Seeking Alpha board members asked us before we proceed with Dipalti, to look at another company. There was another company, I won't mention names, that was an established company that had some of the capabilities they needed. At that point, I thought, well, I am a one-person company out of my laundry room. That other company is a 400-person company. Yeah, I lost that deal. But a couple of weeks later, he comes back and said, yeah, we checked, we looked, we evaluated, we're good to go, let's proceed. That was such a validation for me at the time. You talk about product market fit. That was such a validation that for a product market fit, myself, single person from a laundry room unfunded versus a 400 person company established. I think it was a 10 year old company. And I'm doing something that is so valuable that they won't compromise, but, but work with me. That was uh, one of the key aha moments for me.
0: Talk a little bit about your go to market. And what you learned, and what if there's a playbook, pass us your best lessons to everybody else that's listening.
1: In the early days, the founder needs to be the key person in the sales process in order to really find the message, fine tune the message, really nail the sensitivities of the customer, what you tell them, and what drives them. Uh, so that's the early days. Then try to build uh, the initial playbook uh, for a small team. So that's what I did. I hired a sales leader who was ambitious. So every time you'll kind of hire someone who's maybe not the long-term CRO in this case, but is the right person for that phase, Uh, like a scrappy, a go-getter that hired a few people, tried to train them, try to enable them and, and get them to be productive. And I actually tried to help my, all the employees, all my leaders grow. And I have leaders who've been working with me. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes you need to accept the fact that a a person might be the right person for a certain stage, but not the right person for the next stage. And that happened to me a couple of times with uh, the sales role. And it's legit. All, All my sales leaders did a phenomenal job for the company and grew the company to the right stage. The key lesson is that there are certain stages, different stages for the company. Different leaders are one required and two uh, attainable. And you don't want to hire the thousand person CRO for a 10 person company. It just doesn't work. They won't succeed. The company won't succeed. The key is to identify if a leader uh, reached their Their ceiling, their potential, if they cannot grow beyond that and and just hire the next person. Again, with the backdrop that I try to keep my and grow my leaders, I myself am growing. I never managed a thousand-person company before Tipalti. So it's a journey for all of us.
0: When do you think it makes sense to transition the CEO out of sales?
1: I think the answer to when is it time for me to step aside and let others do the job is almost always, like it's always when I am stopping the company, when I am blocking the company from growing, when I'm blocking my team from growing, when I'm slowing down processes, it's time for me to delegate and move on. And the same is true for sales as much as I was enjoying it and passionate about it and thought that I would do the best job. like and, And at that point in time, it's not true today, but at that point in time, it was true because Everything was in my head and I knew best what is in the future and what is in the past and what we can and cannot and how to tweak the message. So I I knew the, but I was, if I were to stay in the process of sales growing, I would slow our growth as a company. For me overall, it's a 13 and some years journey. It's always about when do I move, I need to move to to grow as a leader, delegate more, Uh, Have a, a, a more of an orchestrating function for myself. And it's an iterative process. Every 18 months, I need to relearn my job and to change what I do and what I'm hand holding and what I'm delegating.
0: I want to talk a little bit about your predictions for the future. You have a really unique vantage point about where B2B fintech is headed. If we fast forward over the next five to 10 years, what are your predictions?
1: I think the FinTech, the accounts payable, finance operations market is very highly delineated. There's small business, mid-market and large enterprise, and all are very under-penetrated. Where we play, which is high growth and mid-market, there are about 700,000 companies worldwide, and it's about 5% penetrated. We're still in the early adopter phase. So with 3,500 customers, it's still the early adopters. It's still uh, the uh, uh, early in the journey, and I think that we're still ahead of the category forming properly, and every CFO uh, knowing that you know day zero when I uh, join a company, I need an ERP, I need uh, finance automation, I need a few uh, things uh, in my tech stack, and that's a b- basic building block. The forward-looking, uh, forward-thinking uh, finance leaders already do that, do that today, but there's a decade of journey before we mature the market and properly saturate the market. There's an opportunity for high growth for many years and until all the market uh, accepts it, like they accept it for HRIS, for ERP, for CRM. Like there are systems that you know you have to put in place. It's obvious you. You need to start with some sort of CRM, mostly uh, Salesforce, I think. And uh, the same will be, I think, in our category and hopefully will be the dominant player moving forward. The other development which affects everyone, every category, every company is generative AI and the whole uh, wave of uh, innovation, of change in the way people interact with software and uh, enhance the ability to ask uh, systems like Tipalti complex questions. It's easier to ask complex questions uh, when you use a generative AI. And given that a lot of what we do uh, has is highly textual, it's not the most uh, sexy text, it's invoices and purchase orders and product descriptions, but it's still textual. AI plays a key role in helping in the automation, in finding whether a purchase order and an invoice really say the same. When a purchase order says, I need a a widescreen monitor, and the invoice says, it's a Dell 1234, and generative AI can actually merge the two and help in the automation process.
0: When all of that happens, what other thing is unlocked? What becomes sort of obvious to you that is then possible or created for the first time?
1: What we are now looking at is a, a lot about how do we recommend, make recommendations to our customers. Uh, we have millions uh, on millions, if not more than that, of invoice information and what, who purchased what, when, and how, how much did they pay, uh, how, are they utilizing it, and so on. So when someone comes and asks, uh, I need to purchase a widescreen monitor, we will know uh, what other companies of similar profile are purchasing, how much are they paying, do they use this uh, solution or another solution, so on. So I think a lot on the recommendation front will be analog using uh, generative AI. For us, there are two distinct users that can uh, benefit from generative AI, the novice user, the one that interacts with Tipalti once a month, a quarter, whatever the the cadence may be, and the professional user who just wakes up in the morning and, and lives in Tipalti most of the day. For the novice, it's obvious that generative AI will be the best interface. Just tell me what you want and Tipalti will do it for you. For the sophisticated user, Uh, it will be those complex questions. How much did we spend on demand generation in London over the last quarter? The data is in Tipalti, it's not that complex, but you need to invest an effort to extract what suppliers are on demand gen, what uh, uh, ledger codes are imported and so on and so forth, while Generative AI will uh, produce the answer in seconds.
0: And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. I want to transition a little bit to you, Chen. You grew up in Tel Aviv. Was it always obvious that you would end up here? Were you always an entrepreneur? Were you always a tinker?
1: I think so. I started, so I'll age myself, but I started before the age of personal computer. I actually just bought a relic. It's called the Commodore 64. That was my second computer. It's one of those, go to a computer museum, you'll find that computer. But I started with, <laughs> I love that. yeah, with my brother teaching me to program on a pocket calculator. It was the Texas Instruments 58C. And my first program, I think one of my first programs was a battleship game. And I loved it and I programmed it and I played with it and was just fascinated with the, with the idea of programming. And that's how I got into it. And then a the Commodore Vic 20 and Commodore 64. And I was actually working and writing professional code on the Commodore 64 when I was a teenager. So my first job was cleaning cars like everyone else. But then uh, someone reached out to me and said, can you write this education software for the Commodore 64? And I did. That might have been my first entrepreneurial work, just as a self-employed programmer before the age of personal computer. And I went through undergrad and worked through undergrad writing educational software as well.
0: Was there some memory or something that happened that has been incredibly helpful to the role of entrepreneur? So is it something your parents did? Was there some that you kind of credit to your ability to be wildly successful running a you know, multi-billion dollar business today?
1: Experience matters, you know. <laughs> There's a stat that shows that entrepreneurs uh, that start companies, I think the peak age is 45 get the highest returns. Having started earlier on and gaining the experiences that I've gained. And part of being an entrepreneur is is also rolling the dice enough times. You know, there's uh, there's skill, there's capability. There's also uh, some form of luck. Me reaching out to Oren, Oren having the experience with his founder, uh, the Citibank experience. Like you need some form of luck to also uh, make it through there. So the fact that I was through several entrepreneurial endeavors, obviously learned some lessons from the past, corrected mistakes from the past. And I think I'm now in a better place or have been throughout this company in a better place to succeed than I've been before. So starting early and going through multiple iterations uh, was pivotal.
0: You have built one of the predominant payment companies without having any background in payment and you're truly an outsider, you know, had an outsider's mindset to building it. Why do you think that worked?
1: I actually think it was an enabler for the success of the company. The fact that they came with no preconceived ideas, without any of the uh, shackles that others would have, because that's how we do things here and that's how regulators want it. And that's what banks expect. I just sat with these two initial customers, it understood their pains, understood their sensitivities, understood, iterated a couple of times to get to the product that I, I felt was best for them. And in a way, I think it was a blessing, right? Because had I known then what I know now about the complexity, you know, working with regulators and getting the licenses and working with banks, and it's, it's a challenge. It's, uh, it's, these are major, major, major investments. Yeah, I think coming with a clean slate, not having any preconceived ideas, just focus, focusing on the customer and building what's right for the customer, later learning, oh, I actually need to do this, and I actually need to do that, but it was the customer mind, uh, first mindset.
0: Before becoming a founder, you were a semi-professional poker player. Did poker help at all in how you think about being a CEO founder?
1: Yes, yeah, some some of the lessons, like when you play poker, there are a few lessons I can think of that play a role in business life. One, uh, in negotiations, and I, there were sometimes both uh, in negotiations with customers and in negotiations with investors, and to some extent in dealing with employees, where I'll say, reading the opponent's hand is critical. It's easy to get caught with your own fears of what would the other party do? What would the other party say? And reading the hand of the other, in poker, reading the hand means the their betting patterns, the way they I've seen them play before. This is the range of hands they have. They might have this hand or that hand, but this is kind of what they, I don't see the cards. This is what I assume they hold it's easy to get spooked by a strong negotiator on the other side if you really have good sense good sense of their hand uh, you'll be a better negotiator and it was it played a key role in all these examples negotiating with investors negotiating with customers and in some employee negotiations or dialogues if you will the other in poker the notion of bankroll is how much money do you have to play right you have to have money for life, and then you have a bankroll, which is what you allocated to play. And out of that, how much do you bet, how much are you willing to put uh, at risk every day, every moment, every hour, every hand? And it's true also for companies. In the early days when you have a a small company and a small bankroll, you might be willing to roll the dice riskier, and, and that's fine. And later on, where we are now, you need to be more mindful. You still need to take risks because without taking risks, you will not make progress. But the risks now affecting a thousand employees and multi-billion dollars of value for the company needs to be managed differently. So just managing your bankroll, understanding what risks are you taking, taking calculated risks, greater risks when uh, you're a smaller company with lesser resources and managing that through the lifetime of the company.
0: You have been at this for 13 plus years. How do you think you've evolved?
1: What did I get better at? Uh, Letting go. But letting go is not just letting go. Letting go comes with some responsibility behind it. In the first year, I did everything. In the second year, we doubled the company. There were the two of us. So I did everything on the product front, but knew everything about the company. In the third year, fourth year, I knew almost everything, I knew everyone. Today, I don't know everyone, I don't know everything. Sometimes I read about things we do in a press release. So it's a different world altogether. The key is uh, for people to grow, for my execs to grow, for myself to grow, and know what to delegate, to feel comfortable with delegating, to empower your people, to make mistakes because at the very first day that you delegate something to someone, they will not be as good as you at doing that, obviously. At the hundredth day, they'll probably be better than you. Empower them to make mistakes, mistakes that you can afford. You need to delegate, but then to also make sure that there is room to investigate. Every now and then, you need to go deep in a certain area where your senses are that, Maybe there's a room for improvement there. Maybe we can change how we do things.
0: I want to move to the quickfire round, uh, Chen. And first idea that comes to your mind, give me that answer. What's your favorite interview question?
1: I just ask a very simple question. Tell me what you know about Tipalti. And I get a lot out of it. I get how inquisitive, how curious are they? How thorough are they? What level of depth they went to? How much investment, how much effort do they put uh, before meeting me? I'm not kind of a big persona, but still, you meet the CEO, you might as well make an effort. Yeah, I think that's a question that I'm able to squeeze a lot out of.
0: Is there a quote you live by? A quote, a mantra, something that really just is sort of a theme of who you are in your life?
1: Execution it's strategy for breakfast. If you don't execute 110%, if you're not moving at the fastest pace possible, if you're not doing, 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 rather than analyzing, 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 you'll be left behind. Uh, so as a company, execution is a key pillar to our values, how I hire my leaders and how I, I expect them to hire their people. But yeah.
0: Last question. What has been your biggest pinch me moment of building defaulty?
1: I'll put two in two extreme timeframes. One is that when uh, when I was uh, against that 400-person company and just understood that something different happened, myself, a single person winning against a 400-person company, a known company, a successful company, that was uh, one of those pinch me moments. The other, um, I, I'm not a great at res- retrospect and looking back and saying, "Oh, yeah, great job, Han. I'm not not that type of guy, but. When we fundraise a lot of, there's a lot of outpour of congratulations. And when we did the last round, uh, obviously in a different world, different economical world, and uh, we got to this $8 billion valuation, just the outpour of congratulations and uh, understanding. Actually, at that point in time, we were the largest private tech company in Israel. I didn't know it until that moment that someone told me that and I went and researched that. So, yeah, wow. well, we've done something in this company.
0: I love that. I love that so much. Congratulations. Chen, thank you so much for joining us here today. Everybody out there, if you want to learn more, check out and You can join us next week for Inc. the Founders Project with Alex von Tobel. Chen, we're rooting for you. We're so proud of you. Um, Thank you for being such an incredible leader. And just again, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Understands that one size doesn't fit all. Each emerging growth company has its own unique needs and issues at different stages of growth. As your startup grows, Deloitte aligns its approach to adapt to that growth. Quality is their top priority. Their approach to client services focuses on the priorities and challenges of high growth companies, the road to IPO, and a commitment to the venture capital community. From startup to IPO and beyond, Deloitte is here to help. See how at Deloitte.com forward slash US. Forward slash E G C that's Deloitte.com D E L O I T T E dot com forward slash U S forward slash E G C.